0: New York Central Park has long provided respite from the bustling concrete jungle. The park was designed by landscape architect and writer Frederick Law Olmsted and the English architect Calvert Vox in 1858 after winning a design competition. Central Park has a wide array of amenities, from running and bike paths, to a swimming pool, to ice skating rinks. But it's the park's trees and landscapes that are the subject of a new book. It's called Central Park, Trees and Landscapes, A Guide to New York City's Masterpiece. The authors are longtime park enthusiast Edward Sibley Barnard and Neil Calvinese, the Central Park Conservancy's former vice president for operations and chief arborist. I'm George Podarchy. And this is Cityscape. Edward Sibley Barnard is also the author of another book called New York City Trees, a field guide for the metropolitan area. I recently caught up with him outside of Central Park's conservatory garden on 5th Avenue and 105th Street. From there, we took a short walk around the park to check out some of its magnificent trees.
1: My name is Ned Barnard. Um, On my books, um, it's Edward Sibley Barnard. My editor always thought that it would be a good idea to put Sibley in because of the Sibley field guides, but no no relation. I uh, lived in New York uh, near Central Park for over 40 years. When I retired, I was a book editor for many years, and I also had a chain of stores that my wife and I uh, ran, a uh, little chain of stores across the country. But when I retired, my wife unfortunately had passed away with breast cancer, and uh, I uh, was walking my dog around in Riverside Park, and uh, it was interesting to see the trees that he liked to stop at, to mark. And uh, I thought, gee, I, and I was a nature editor too. I edit, edited natural history books, and, but I realized I didn't know the difference between a black oak and a red oak. And uh, I didn't know what the tree was right next to the steps in Riverside Park, where there are all these spiky balls I thought, gee, I better, I better learn this, and I got into it. and And the tree guides that uh, I found were a little hard to use. The text would be in one place, a picture would be in another, the bark picture might be in yet another. And so I thought, well, I think I can do better than this. And so I created that little um, book called New York City Trees, which is, I think, it's up to its eighth or ninth printing now. It's done. You know, you you never get rich on on book storage. I hate to tell you, unless you're a best-selling uh, uh, mystery novelist or something, but it, it's been a successful little book for
0: Columbia University Press. And anyway. now we're here to talk about another great book about the landscapes and trees of well, Central we, Park.
1: I uh, thank you very much for calling it great. I appreciate that adjective. We'll see how um, how our readers think about it and whether, I, whether it sells as well as the other one. Um, but we're standing right here at the gates of the Conservatory Garden, and uh, this is something that uh, Olmsted and Vox never would have dreamed of however they did have a formal garden down where the conservatory water is you know the boat pond they were going to have a a conservatory there and then a formal garden but uh, they dug the foundations and the commissioner said hey this is going to be too expensive so they just turned the foundations into a hard edge reflecting pool the boat
0: pond so that's what we have but here Olmsted and box of course, the designers of Central Park.
1: Yes, yes, I'm sorry. I mean, I suppose I really should should um, add some explanations of these names. But anyway, they were confronted with this long, narrow, boulder-strewn, very unpromising-looking bit of land. And, and you, you have to think... Uh, that the commissioners and without being a chauvinist I'll say the city fathers because at that point there weren't many women um, in politics uh, were very far sighted and they purchased this land 800, well it was a little less than that they added a little section up here in the north when they started work but uh, they they bought it for 7 million dollars and then they put another 7 million into improving it and in uh, our dollars in in uh, 2016 dollars is 200 million dollars, which was a hell of a lot of money for an unpromising, way north of where most people lived, bunch of boulders, really smelly depressions, swampy, very unattractive uh, areas, lots of squatter shacks, uh, tanneries. I mean, it was not it was not a nice place, but Homestead uh, was visionary enough to see that it had very good bones, that uh, you could do something with it. And so they started to work, and they started on the south end. My book, actually, the first part of it, describes the landscapes going from south to north. And um, they started work down there, and uh, Olmsted had this idea for one really formal spot, which was going to be the mall with its lines of elms, and also... They, they had specified, the commissioners, that there had to be a parade ground, and that became Sheep Meadow. But it was a real mess. There was a 19-foot-high stone ledge. There were huge boulders that, when you pulled out, left giant holes in the ground. There were really nasty, swampy spots. There were a whole bunch of squatter shacks, and as I said, and tanneries that had to be removed. And they ended up uh, spending just on Sheep Meadow and, and the mall. A uh, million dollars out of out of the seven that they spent improving the place. So it was a lot of dough. And when you consider that at the same time, uh, in the same decade, we bought Alaska for just a little over seven million dollars. That was like eight cents an acre, three hundred eighty thousand square miles. Uh, uh, Central Park, um, you know, eight hundred forty-three. It was there was almost nine thousand dollars in their dollars uh, an acre. So. Uh, It is really kind of amazing that they had the vision to do this for us, because it could never get done now, you know. And for me, Central Park is an opportunity for us to see deep time. Um, You can come into Central Park, and you can look at the wonderfully grooved rocks, and you're taken back to the Pleistocene. And then when you consider that these rocks were uh, created over a period of about 500 million years, uh, you're 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 looking at something so old, so incredibly old, that it's just an enormous contrast with our streets and our buildings that we're pulling down almost every day to put something else up. Thank heavens they left this spot for us to get in to nature again and try to bring ourselves into the present, and yet at the same time see how insignificant we are. How long this. I mean, we started out um, below the equator, this, this whole continent, and moved north at the speed of a fingernail. And it took that long to get up here uh, 450 million years or so. But anyway, here we are at the gate of uh, the conservatory garden, and we're looking at something that Olmsted and Box would not, uh, certainly did not visualize here. They were going to have a formal garden, but it was way south. What was going on here was they had a nursery. And then they just dumped um, lots of wood and debris and leaves and everything, which they're still doing up above there. And it was only um, it was only in 1899 that they actually built three conservatories. One was quite tall in the middle; it like could put palm trees in it. And then there were passageways, glass passageways on either side, and there were there were twin conservatories on either side. And you can see my picture in the in the uh... spread on the conservatory garden of that of that conservatory and it was very popular people um... uh... were quite excited about it in the first year There were almost a million and a half visitors wow. and, uh, and but then over a period of time like um, everything else in central park it fell into disrepair and um, finally it was just a hulk it was abandoned all the glass is broken the kids are having a great time breaking panes and uh, so Commissioner Moses came along with his desire to tidy everything up and uh, he pulled it down and he assigned his chief landscape designer and his wife, M. Betty Sprout, to uh, create and design the conservatory garden. And I love it, but it's not own steady. And I mean, we have up there a, um, a formal um, French sort of arrangement, you know, where the tulips and everything go in this ring. We have this Italianate center with the uh, wisteria pergola up at the end, um, surrounded by cropped yews. And then to the south, we have the English garden. But we have a couple of, for me, uh, a tree lover, um, some treasures. So let's walk in.
0: Yeah, let's get off of the somewhat busy Fifth Avenue and go into the quieter conservatory garden.
1: Getting into the park here, and it does get quieter immediately. It's one of the wonderful things about getting into this place you start to clear your head and maybe think a little bit and and if you quit looking at your iPhone and just sort of look at the present I mean it can be a, a wonderful experience and so here we are and these I feel these alleys of crab apples that are past their blooming point are treasures of Central Park and this is one of the things that we have to thank commissioner moses for there are a lot of people that knock him but um he did have this garden design and uh his uh landscape designers uh, imported these trees from upstate up the hudson and uh brought them down on barges and there's this story i don't know if it's apocryphal enough that there was a a robin uh, nesting in one of the trees, and if they manage to get the robin with her young, maybe both of them down here and ensconced <laughs> in, in the uh, conservatory garden. But anyway, you have these marvelous trees. Uh, they're uh, all clonal. Apples are clonal. If you take any apple off of any tree, you're not going to get the same tree that you had. So if you want to retain... If you want to retain the same flowers and habit, you've got to raise your, um, your trees clonally by sprouts, you know, and, and because that's the only way you can do it. So these are all, all have the same DNA on one side. There's one group over here uh, that they know is um, Malus floribunda, a, a Japanese uh, variety of crabapple. The others, they don't really know exactly what they are but they're beautiful trees. Now I'll show you the single most beautiful uh, crabapple for me uh, in, in, the, uh, in the, the conservatory garden. It's in this southern end, which is the sort of English landscape, more or less. And um, we're going by some very nice lilacs, a very nice collection, but they're not blooming at this point. And there are some wonderful um, magnolias like that one there. Uh, but one of the things that I love is this spectacular, this, this tree here to me is one of the most spectacular crap apples I've ever seen. Now we're not looking at it in uh, the most favorable light, but in uh, you'll see a picture in, in the book uh, opening the section on uh, the genus uh, malus for, for, for apples, and um, this tree is backlighted um, and it's, it's, this is a, just a marvelous example uh, of a crap apple, the way you want to get it. You don't want to have just a lollipop and one little trunk. You, you want to have a group of trunks uh, that are wonderfully twisting, moving out the way this tree does. So how old
0: yeah. would this tree be about?
1: Well, you know, figuring that the whole thing was only built in 1934, I have a feeling it probably was planted right about that time, the same time that
0: the uh, trees in the alleys were, um, were planted. Are yeah. there any trees in Central Park that bear fruit that you could actually eat? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, there are many
1: of them. I mean, they're mulberries. Uh, when white mulberries are blooming, you see... You see crowds of uh, pigeons underneath and other birds eating it, and you ought to try it. I mean, they're really great. The birds know where to go. And then there are also Cornelian cherries. Uh, Cornelian cherry is a, uh, a tree. It's cornice moss. It's related to our flowering dogwood. It has uh, little red berries. In Europe, um, Europeans, particularly in Eastern Europe, have um, cultivated those trees to get larger fruits, and they get pretty big almost as big as uh, cherry tomatoes and they're really good you can make a great jam out of them and um, let's see there there are there are a bunch of others here that uh, I should be able to uh, tell you about of course I mean obviously uh, the apples and we have real apple trees uh, behind uh, the Metropolitan Museum there's a wonderful apple tree I think there were two I believe there's one now and it produces uh, uh, very nice apples that have a, a kind of a Pink uh, stain to their flesh, and I would often come up, pick one off the ground, shine it on my pants, and eat it. And the other people sunbathing there would look at me, and then they would all start eating the apples. Nobody ate them at first, but as soon as they saw somebody else, I thought, Well, we'll try it. And they were very good, actually. So uh, I was thinking that we could, I'm not going to talk much about the uh, flowers here because, first of all, George, sadly, I don't know that much about them. You're a tree guy. Yes, I'm a tree guy. I I start with something 10 feet high with a a woody trunk, and when you get down, I I do cover some of the um, important shrubs uh, in the park, like, for example, that one over there is an oak leaf hydrangea, and I tell the story of how it was discovered by John Bartram, one of our earliest uh, botanists, uh, who... Created a wonderful um, arboretum in Pens- uh, Philadelphia, uh, and he discovered it near Macon, Georgia. He discovered some other things on his trips. Anyway, uh, and my, wow, that's a nice lilac over there, isn't it? Yeah, that there is a beautiful there. purple. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's. Uh, I was thinking we might go north from here to uh, the Harlem Meer, which is a more traditional Olmsteadian landscape, which this certainly is not. So.
0: So has there been a survey to find out just how many trees there actually are in Central Park in total? Yes, indeed. Um, first of all, um,
1: the Conservancy got um, uh, some people to GPS most of the trees with uh, trunks, I think, larger than three inches in diameter or some, somewhere in that range. And so they had a pretty good idea of where the, you know, the reasonably sized trees uh, beyond saplings were located. Then um, my, my partner, because uh, uh, my partner is a, a designer, his name is Ken Chea, and he created this wonderful map of Central Park with almost 20,000 trees in position. All the, all the substantial trees in Central Park. And uh, this map, is incorporated in my book and there are flaps that flip out you look at the map and you see tree icons uh... they're numbered and if you flip out the front flap you see a numerical list from one to over two hundred i think basically uh, using the book and the numbers on the tree icons you can locate twenty thousand trees in central park by species in many cases and if not species at least you can tell that it's, uh, it's genus. For example, I may not tell you that a tree is an English
0: that, uh, elm, but you'll know it's an elm. Uh, and so how many species are there in the park? Well, there, I think there are well,
1: certainly well over 200 species of woody plants, mostly trees. And uh, yes, that, and we cover uh, over 200 in the book. We don't cover every one of them by any means, but we cover 98% of the trees that you're likely to uh, encounter. So we'll go out here, and then we're going to immediately confront um, a Gnome landscape, uh, sort of an irregularly shaped piece of water called the Harlem Meer, uh, which is fed by the loch, which is a river that comes from... Uh, a little pond called the Pool over on the west side, around and 100th Street, and it goes down through a valley that, um, uh, and then under uh, the Huddlestone uh, Arch, the wonderful bridge that maybe we'll pass under, and comes out here. And Homestead and, and Vox dug out this area to create this this bit of water, and then it used to empty in to what was called Montaigne's Creek which was a larger body of water that was uh, brackish that went down to the East River and this uh, the lock as we now call it was called Montaigne's Rivulet and it was one of the four major streams in Central Park and it it was probably carved originally by the, the the glaciers and it went through a forest that was rather different from the North Woods because the Northwoods... well we'll talk a little bit about the northwoods when we get there but
0: well this is a great place for turtle spotting I've seen yeah, many oh, yeah. a turtle here yeah.
1: yeah I love turtles yeah I guess a lot of people release uh, their the turtles they have at home in a uh, in their uh, aquarium after a certain point and they end up in here because there are a lot of those sliders with the you know with with the, the green and yellow and maybe red you know they're they're a lot of fun and they're quick, quick moving. So, anyway, um, we we can see a few very nice trees here. For example, uh, there are two red oaks right there, and you can tell red oaks because they've got, um, among other things, ski trails going up the uh, trunks. That's one you know sort of sign of re- easy way to sort of tell at a distance if you can't see the leaves too, too well. And I'm saying red oak. But oaks are problematic. Let me. This. What makes an oak problematic? Well, uh, they hybridize, and sometimes you get something that's halfway between a black oak and a scarlet oak, or something else. Uh, but this is definitely a red oak. And if you compared it with uh, the leaves uh, on my spread on red oaks, you would agree with me. And uh, it looks as though. Looks as though this other one. This other one is a red oak. So we've got two red oaks. I, I was right about that. So is it um,
0: typically the bark that you're looking at
1: or is it the leaf that you're looking at? Uh, well, the, the most important thing with oaks, I mean, to start you ought to look at the leaf. And then the second, uh, the second thing that is really diagnostic is the uh, acorn. Acorns are pretty... If you're having trouble figuring out whether it's a black oak or a scarlet oak, you can usually tell by looking at the, the acorn but sometimes you've got a hybrid and it, it doesn't you know it just doesn't fit in because Mother Nature doesn't really know about Linnaeus's
0: taxonomy you know and she likes to sort of fool around so I would imagine that there is a wide variety of oaks in this park.
1: There are quite a few oaks and you'll see that it's a large section in the book. I start off. The more important genera with introductions, and so I have a, I have an introduction called oak, and I have a spread on that, and I, I talk about the characteristics of the genera, of the genus, and then I can't remember exactly how many, but I think there may be, ten there, somewhere in that neighborhood, George. I'd have to open the book. I've got it on my back and count, but it's uh, close to that. There are a lot of them, and uh, we'll see. If we're going to see some more as we go along. There we've got a, um, an American elm, and we've got and, and the elms are like the oaks. We've got a lot of elms in, in the park. The American elm is the only American tree. All the other elms are European or Asian. These are interesting trees. And you associate them with the Deep South. They are just starting to leaf out. They look dead during the winter. You would think they were dead. Uh, they're deciduous conifers. In other words, they drop their leaves in the fall. Most conifers, as you know, keep their needles on, and they look green throughout the year. They drop their needles more gradually, but uh, bald cypresses drop their needles every single uh, year, and and then grow new ones. And they are uh, associated with water and places like okefenokee swamp, and you know the the, the Everglades. They get very big, and in Situations like that, they have what we call knees. They're funny, sort of uh, spiky things that um, pop up out of the water around them. And uh, there's a lot of speculation on the exact purpose of bald cypress knees, but I think the dominant theory now is that they help uh, uh, with the stability of the tree because a bald cypress is unusual in that it can usually withstand almost any hurricane and right itself. It, has a tendency to rock back and forth and sort of take the wind, uh, absorb the wind, and then pop up again. So, And what is that shorter, stumpier tree behind it? I've got to get a little closer to those leaves. We'll take a look at it and I'm sure we'll figure it out. Um, it's her, You know what? It's, uh, it's some kind of willow. And uh, willows are, sometimes they're, they have a really weeping habit, and uh, other times like this tree, they—they they, when I say habit, I'm talking about the sort of silhouette of the of the branches and the trunk and everything. And this, you can tell, these are very willowy leaves. They're long, sort of lanceolate, as the as the botanists say. And uh, it's it's probably uh, a black willow or a hybrid. They're very tricky. Its, a, it's genus Salix is. Uh, Confusing, and there's an awful lot of hybridizing that goes on, and it's hard to pin down. I sort of explain this: they have uh, sort of profligate ways. They, you know, they, 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 like to sort of intermix with each other in in ways that um, are confusing for taxonomists, the people who try to put everything into a nice little box in botany. Now that's a very large tree that we haven't encountered. Called, it's a linden, and. Uh, the way you tell lindens is that they have, um, they have this little strap-like thing that sticks down. And off those little straps, you get a, a little stem with, uh, with their fruits. I don't see them up here, though. Some of these straps don't seem to have the uh, stems. I wish we were a little closer, but this tree has been trimmed up so tall that we can't really look at the branches. But here we are, and this is probably a tree you know, George. Does that do you recognize that tree by its sort of fan-shaped leaves? It's really unusual. The leaves. It's a ginkgo.
0: It's a ginkgo. Yeah,
1: yeah. And it, and it, and as and as you know, I mean everybody's aware that ginkgos uh, have a very old lineage, and that they have found fossils with ginkgo leaves that look very much like today's ginkgo leaves. There are more species. There's only one now, um, as as old as maybe almost uh, three hundred million years. So it's been around for a long time, and it. It, habit is a little bit. Um, uh, it's a bit, a little bit awkward, but the leaves turn to beautiful golds in the fall, and they almost all drop at once. So you have the, this wonderful circle of gold around the foot, uh, of a ginkgo. Now the female ginkgos, as a lot of people are aware and don't like, have a very smelly, uh, uh, f- sort of fruit-covered um, seed. And uh, you will see Asian ladies in in the fall collecting these from the bottom of female trees. They're male and female trees. They're not on, they're, The flowers are different. Some trees are like that. You know, they they're male or female, or other trees have a complete flower and they have both the male and female flowers on the same tree. What's the most exotic tree in the park? One of the most exotic trees in terms of its unusual history and uh, its appearance is uh, the Don Redwood. Uh, there are three of them up at the north end of Strawberry Fields. The Don Redwood was only discovered by um, a Chinese uh, naturalist and arborist uh, in 1946, and that's unusual. Almost all the trees we have in the park uh, were discovered at least in the 19th century and, and or the 18th or the 17th. And so when you have a discovery of a, of a tree, it's a big botanical event, and it was for the Don Redwood. And the Don Redwood is called Metasequoia glyptus and it is related to some of the other great long-lived trees like the sequoia. And uh, they were once spread across North America. And then the glaciers killed them here, and they were completely obliterated in North America and Europe. But... Uh, China uh, was a place where many species survived the glaciers because the glaciers just didn't get that far. And uh, so when Zan Wang, this Chinese forester, discovered the dawn redwood, he was told by a friend that there was this strange, very primitive-looking tree, and he arrived in this denuded valley There was one great tree standing at the end over a Buddhist temple. He couldn't even reach, until he got up on the roof of the Buddhist temple, he couldn't even reach a branch and tear one off and some cones, which he finally did, and he sent them to Chinese botanists at the university, and they figured out it was a new species. My message is, is enjoy. Trees can bring peace, quiet, and the presence back to us urban dwellers so preoccupied with fighting uh, the fight for daily life in this
0: town. <laughs> Ned, thank you so much for your time. You know,
1: thanks a lot, George. It was a, it was very much a, a lot of fun being with you. Huh.
0: Ned Barnard is a leading naturalist and author. His latest book is a co-production with Neil Calvinese, the Central Park Conservancy's former vice president for operations and chief arborist. The book is called Central Park, Trees and Landscapes, A Guide to New York City's Masterpiece. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Polarkey. My thanks for listening.